Good. So, today we're carrying on our series in Ruth, and we're going to be looking at Ruth chapter 2 in a minute. Just before we start that, brief reminder of where we're up to in the story. So, Joe and John, over the last couple of weeks, have taken us through chapter 1. We've basically seen that Ruth and Naomi have started to return to Bethlehem from Moab. They've been in Moab for quite a long time, and they've suffered a lot of disappointment. So we've seen that Naomi, first of all, has lost her husband, and then she's also lost her two sons as well, one of those sons being married to Ruth. So they've seen a lot of disappointment, but we've also been reminded that they've also kept their faith in God through that disappointment, and they've kept their hope in the future as well. And they started this journey back to Bethlehem, this journey of hope for what God's going to do in the future. So we're almost at a turning point in the story now. Now, where we pick it up at the start of chapter 2, it's just after they've made this journey. And when we read it about it in chapter 1, it's almost a, a brief sentence about how they've made this journey from Moab to Bethlehem. But actually, when you look at it, I mean, we, today we live in a society where you can travel anywhere at very fast. So next week we're actually going to travel to China, which is the other side of the world, and it's only 11 hours on a plane, and it's quite amazing. But in those days, obviously, things even though they were closer together, took a lot longer. So they reckon it would have been seven to ten days it would have taken them to make this journey. And that would have been in quite harsh conditions as well. If you think Naomi, she wasn't a, a spring chicken. She was obviously getting on a little bit. Um, and they had got to make this journey. They'd have had to cross the River Jordan. They'd have had to climb about 2,000 feet as they're making this journey. And it would have been dangerous at times, two women traveling alone. But God has obviously kept them safe, and they've arrived. However, they would have arrived, if you can imagine, tired after such a long journey. And they would have arrived destitute, as, as Joe explained a couple of weeks ago. At the very end of chapter 1, it says, the one kind of glimmer of hope is it's harvest time. And that's important as we start to read chapter 2. Okay, so let's now... Without further ado, have a look at chapter 2. Now Naomi had a a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, Go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young lady, that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, She is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the woman. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. 
At this she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered and it amounted to about an ephah. She carried it back to town and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead, she added. That man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabite said, He even said to me, Stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the woman who worked for him, because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the, mar- the barley and wheat feet harvests were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. So as we read through this passage, two things really stand out to me. First of all, we see God's provision. We see that God is a God of provision. And secondly, we're introduced to this character, Boaz, for the first time in the story. And we begin to see something of the character of Boaz, something of the righteousness of Boaz, something of the integrity of Boaz. So today I want to unpack those two things and have a look at what we can learn from this section of the story. So first of all, God's provision. As I mentioned, last week John looked at the disappointment that both of the women had faced, the suffering that they'd both gone through, And now the story begins to turn. And we see that Naomi's continued faith in God was not ill-placed. It was not misplaced. After a long journey, they arrive back in Bethlehem and the whole town is stirred. Is this really Naomi that's come back? They knew Naomi and they're surprised to see her return. And as her story unfolds and she talks of the bitterness that has come upon her, you can almost imagine that the people would have started to judge her for what had happened. After all, they'd just gone through this time of famine. They'd fled and gone to a foreign land rather than God's promised land. That's something obviously not great to do for a start. But secondly, Naomi's sons had married Moabites. They'd married foreigners. Again, something God 
forbidden them, had forbidden them to do. Now Elimelech and her sons and his sons were, were dead. And many would have seen this as God's judgment, and many would have looked down on them as a result. Even if we go beyond that, then, then Ruth's come back, and Ruth is a Moabite, so she's a foreigner now in that land. And again, they would have looked down on Ruth. Many of them wouldn't even have wanted to have Ruth in their house because it would have made them unclean. It doesn't mention in the passage where they stayed or where they ate, but it is strange that straight away Ruth is having to go out and start working to start gaining some food. Perhaps because of their background, people were not that favorable to them. But we see the difference straight away with Boaz. We see the difference with Boaz, but we also see that God has built provision into his law. So we read about gleaning in Deuteronomy. It's something that's been set out. And basically it's a concept whereby farmers are going to leave some of the uh, crops in the corners of their field for poor people, for widows, for foreigners, so that they've got some food that they can harvest. And also as they go along, so you've got this picture whereby the men are going along kind of cutting the crops, and then behind the men you've got women who are harvesting the crops. But you can imagine some of those crops they're going to basically miss as they're, they're gathering it all up. And the law of gleaning, the second part of gleaning, is that they're not to go back and try and pick up those bits that they've, they've missed, they've left behind. So that's what Ruth's doing. She's working behind the women who are gathering the crops, and she's trying to pick up the little bits that they might have missed or dropped, basically. It's a kind of, sort of social security system that God has built into his law. I find it kind of interesting that there is now a movement that started a few years ago in the UK called the Gleaning Network, and it basically aims to start doing this, to harvest unwanted fruit and vegetables and redistribute it to the poor. So you get things like, if there's too many apples, they'll try and gather all those apples. If there's too many soft fruit that can't be picked quickly enough um, to make profit, then they'll kind of mobilize very quickly. They'll go and collect that soft fruit and distribute it. Or also you get things like a lot of mechanical gathering of vegetables these days. And the the machines are very efficient, but they will leave behind maybe 1 or 2% of carrots or potatoes or whatever they're gathering. So it would be uneconomical for the farmers to go and collect it by hand, but the gleaning network will go and kind of do that, go and mop up almost the same principle that you see in the Bible. God's wisdom was ahead of man. But in the last three years, those people in the UK have gathered one million portions of fruit and veg through this. So you can see the amount of stuff just in this country that there is that's available. And that's what this law was all about. It was basically all about making sure the full produce of the field was used for the good of the whole community. If anyone is interested, we've got quite a glut of parsley and rosemary in our garden this year, probably more than even Hannah can use in their fish pies, delicious as they are. So, uh, yeah, you're welcome to come and glean from our garden if anyone's wanting parsley and rosemary. What I also like about this whole method is that it's it's not a handout. So, although Ruth is and Naomi have, have next to nothing, and they've got this kind of thing built into the law, you also read through the passage that, that Ruth is working really hard to earn it, basically. It's not something she's getting for nothing. 
So we, as we look through the passage, we see that she worked hard from early until evening. It must have been real back-breaking work, bent over in the fields, picking up these leftover crops through the heat of the day as well. And we see that the, the other workers are almost quite impressed by this. When Boaz comes to speak to them, they te- tell about how she's only stopped for one short break. Again here we see Ruth's faithfulness, her strength of character, the, the fact that she's willing to do all this hard work to provide for her mother-in-law, Naomi. I think this kind of welfare, if you like, this kind of social security, to me, is, is the best kind, whereby people have an occupation, where people are allowed to have the, the dignity, the self-worth, the satisfaction, the meaning of their lives of actually going and earning, not having a handout. And that should be the long-term aim, I think, of any kind of social security, without getting too political on it all. <laughs> I love charities like Bombay Teen Challenge. They reach out in the red light zones of Mumbai and they seek to, to liberate women and children who have been caught up in that area and they seek to educate them, to give them vocational training. But also, obviously, there is that immediate need for the safety, the safety net. They give them home and a shelter as well. They give them security. In short, they show God's love to these people who are the poorest in society, the people most that need. And they enable them, empower them to set them free. A number of times recently, we've, we've talked about God's provision. Here in our church, we talked about how he meets specific needs, sometimes on a kind of an ad hoc basis as we cry out to him. We see almost supernatural provision or very timely provision. But here in this passage, it's almost slightly different, whereby we see God's heart for the poor written into law. So God is a God who has always ensured that his people are provisioned for consistently. God provides for those who trust in him. We saw the faith of Naomi. We saw that um, Ruth adopted that faith, even though she'd seen so much disappointment, so much suffering. I think it's amazing that Ruth still realized that God was God, and she still had that faith. As Boaz puts it in this passage, she places himself under the wings of God, under his security. And we see here that God does not fail when people do that. When people put their faith in God, God provides for them. God's a God of provision. But the other big thing that we see in this passage is how he uses Boaz in amongst that provision to be a kind of an instrument for him. And I want to have a look at that now. The righteousness of Boaz. So gleaning, as I say, was something that was built into God's law. It was something they were required to do. However, as Joe kind of covered again in the first talk of this series, the people have just come through a time of famine. And the reason for that famine was because they were under God's judgment, because they'd turned their backs on God. So the people have turned away from God, and that's why the judgment came. And although they've come back to God now, such that there is a harvest again, there is a time of of some crops again, It still says in Judges, the very kind of last sentence in Judges, that this was a time where everyone did as they saw fit. So it's fairly easy to imagine that not everyone was practicing the law of God as Boaz was, that not everyone would have allowed people to glean 
in their fields, that not everyone would have left the crops in the corners. You can imagine that some of the greedier farmers would have been taking everything they could from their fields. But over and above that, so Boaz was a righteous man who followed the law. He allowed Ruth to glean in his fields. But over and above that, he goes beyond the requirements of the law. And we see that in a number of different ways through the passage. First of all, he commands the young men who work for him not to go near her. The safety of Ruth is guaranteed. And that's not a small thing, because if you can imagine again that she's a, a Moabitess who's in a foreign land, a young lady, and suddenly there's all these young, kind of young male workers, then she is in a vulnerable position. Naomi's comment later on in the passage shows that this offer of safety was not something that came lightly and was something that she should really kind of grab onto because it was a significant thing. So Boaz offers safety and security. Secondly, he tells her to help herself to the water that his men have drawn. Thirdly, he provides her with lunch as well. Again, he's not even required perhaps to do that for the people that actually work for him, that he's giving a salary to. But Ruth, who's not even working for him, he chooses to go over and above and give her her lunch, more than enough lunch, that she has her fill and then is able to take some home to Naomi as well. And lastly, rather than just leaving it to chance that there'll be some stuff for her to pick up, he actually then instructs the girls, who are the ladies who are doing the harvesting, to drop some extra for her. So we see at the end of the day, she comes back after threshing out the uh, barley. She has 22 litres of barley left, kind of taken up that day. It's a significant amount. And Naomi is clearly amazed when she comes back to her with all this barley and says, where did you get this? Where have you been today? And so she explains to her that she's been in Boaz's field. And Naomi says, God bless Naomi. Uh, God bless Boaz. Boaz went over and above the requirements of the law in all these different ways. And I find that really quite challenging for for us as well. I think so often we can kind of, even though we live in a time of grace, this was a time when they were totally governed by the law, but now we live in, in a time of grace, and yet still we can kind of try and work out what is it we're required to do. So we'll give our tithe, our 10%, and we'll kind of, even though that's a, that's quite a big sacrifice and, and not to be kind of, taken lightly, but we'll kind of think, oh, well, I give my tithe and I serve in this way and that way on a Sunday. So I kind of do what I'm required to do. I kind of, I do my bit, if you like. Boaz went over and above what he was required to do. I find it really quite quite challenging. And one of the things I found challenging was when I read Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, he talks about this whole subject, how much should we give as Christians in this time when we're under grace. And he says, I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditures excludes them. Boaz clearly didn't look at how much he should give. Instead, he looked at how much was required, what Ruth and Naomi needed. He looked at the the kind of human situation here. He saw two people with nothing, and he provided everything they needed. He went over and above what he had to do. 
It clearly didn't take into account the loss of kind of wealth to himself and the fact that, that, that they were taking that off him for nothing. Why does Boaz show this kindness? We read in the first verse that he is a man of standing. Basically, he's a, he's a wealthy and influential man within the town. But he was also a righteous man. And you can see that straight away, even, even in the way that he greets his workers and they greet him back. You can see the respect that they have for him. And we'll see more of that as the story develops and we hear more about Boaz. He's a man of integrity who does the right thing. It would have been really easy for him to be judgmental. After all, he had chosen to stay in Bethlehem during all the lean years, unlike his relative Elimelech. He would have known all about the fact that Elimelech took what seemed the easy option in terms of going where the food was, even though that's what God had not asked them to do. And as I mentioned before, Ruth was a Moabite who would have been rejected by many. So why does Boaz show them such favor? Ruth actually asks him that question, doesn't she? She says, why are you showing me this favor? I'm a foreigner here. What are you doing? And Boaz first of all mentions that the kindness and faithfulness that Ruth has shown. So he's basically seen what Ruth has done and as a result of that he's clearly been impressed by what she's done and that's part of the reason. But I think it probably goes over and above that as well. I think it's quite significant. We don't read it in this passage but we see elsewhere in the Bible that Ruth, sorry, Boaz was the son of Rahab. So if you remember, Rahab was the Canaanite who lived in the walls of Jericho. So she wasn't actually an Israelite. She was the one that who, when the Israelites came to spy out Jericho, she sheltered the spies in the wall because she realized that God was with them. She'd heard the stories of what God had done in terms of getting them out of Egypt, and she realized that God was going to give them that land. And because of that faith that she had in God, she sheltered, sheltered the, the spies, even though it was kind of putting her at immediate risk. As a result of that faith, she was saved, and she actually married one of the spies called Salmon and had Boaz as their son. So Boaz had already seen firsthand that God's not actually looking for nationality. God's looking for faith. God's looking for a heart that seeks after him. That was the whole point of him choosing the Israelites in the first place, the whole point of him kind of making them his promise, giving them the promised land and, and blessing them abundantly. It was to be a sign to the surrounding nations that he was God, to be a sign ultimately to lead them to God as well. And that's exactly what we see with Ruth and Rahab. And it's really significant that both of those two kind of pillars of faith who are almost adopted into the Israelites. Both of them are in the direct lineage of Jesus. Throughout this story, we see much of the heart of God. We read much about his provision, as I said, but we also read about his love, his grace and mercy, and ultimately his redemption. Boaz's example, the way that he acts, is is almost Christ-like. And it's kind of like what we're called to be as Christians, if you like. We're called to be Christ-like. Again, I think as we look through this story, there are big links back to the series that Rob has preached recently on our culture here at Jubilee. So we see here how Boaz honors Ruth. 
we see here how he treats her as family. It goes beyond his monetary provision. It goes right up to kind of her safety, her well-being, looking after her. And these are all things that we should look at as well. There's a, a number of years ago, I was traveling at the time quite a lot with work to India. And one of the times I was out there, um, Hannah was, it's before the boys were born, and Hannah was, um, I can't remember if she was at university or whether she was working at the time, but basically she came home that evening and her house had been robbed. Someone had broken in and ransacked the place. They hadn't actually taken that much, but they'd made a complete mess. And you can imagine she was obviously in quite a state when she came home to that, and I'm away, not around at the time. But one of the great things was just how the church at that time, the people that were round about, looked out for her and basically ensured her safety, her well-being. She actually went and stayed with the marshals that night and stayed in their house because she didn't want to stay in this house by herself that had just been been robbed. And to me, that's again a, a real example of how, as a church, we are a family and we're called to look beyond just the kind of simple things and just doing our what's required of us. We're called to watch out for one another in these ways. The other thing that's really kind of challenged me this week as I've been looking at this story and kind of preparing has been all the stuff that we've heard in the press about the so-called migrant crisis in Cali and in Europe in general. So if you look at Ruth, basically she was an economic migrant. She was someone who had gone to another country that wasn't her own because she'd been in a, in a hard place at the time. Many of the migrants in Europe right now are actually fleeing horrific wars. They're fleeing, fleeing brutality as well as extreme poverty. And I kind of wonder, what should our response be as Christians to that? We've heard a lot of different emotional stuff, a lot of different almost scaremongering stuff in the press this week. Philip Hammond, the Foreign Secretary, has referred to them as marauding migrants, people who are a threat to the UK security. And it can kind of, when we read those headlines and when we we look at the, the size of the crisis, then you can almost start to overlook the fact, forget the fact that these are actually human beings. Who are behind, who are there, suffering these horrendous things. There's no easy solutions, obviously, to a problem that size, but as Christians, I think we need to consider what our response is to something like that. There's a number of different things we can do. First of all, clearly we can pray. We can pray about the situation. We can pray and ask God what our personal response should be. Secondly, I think we can give as well. So there's Christian companies like Tear Fund that I really respect. They they work in Syria right now, where a lot of these refugees are coming from. In Syria itself, there are currently 12 million homeless people, 5 million children. Tear Fund are working with those people. Their ultimate aim is to help them return to their homes and see them set up back again with lives and incomes in their own country. But their immediate Goal is provision of food and shelter, which is what they need, obviously, most right now, which costs money. We can also write to our MPs. When we see things like like what's been said this week, 
not just by Philip Hammond, but by, by others as well. It's clear, that, it's clear to me that the UK is not doing enough right now. Refugees coming to the UK currently get £36.95 a week to live on. They're not allowed to work. That's one of the rules of them being here. We contrast that to the story that we've just read in Ruth. It would be quite a different story if basically God's provision at that time had just been a a, a kind of small, meager handout each week that was just enough for them to get a bit of food. Instead, as we'll see as we read the rest of the story, the story becomes much bigger than that. And God's redemption is, is much bigger. So is that right? Is it right that as a country we don't let people work who are refugees? Can we do more as a country in terms of the numbers we're bringing in? So there's 12 million Syrians that are homeless. How many do you think the UK has taken in as refugees so far? I read this week it's 187. Turkey has taken in 1.6 million. Bit of a difference. So again, we can write to our MPs, we can raise awareness of these different things. We can kind of almost start to break through some of the, I guess, the lies and scaremongering that is spread in some of the press. And we can remember that at the bottom of it all is our human beings, people that that God loves, that has a heart for, that wants to see released. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells us the parable of the sheep and the goats. And again, it's one of these really kind of challenging parables. So he says, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. This is to the sheep, he says this. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. That's what he says to the sheep, to those who are promised eternal life. But more scarily, he says the reverse then, to the goats, to those who have not done that, who have chosen to overlook the hungry, who have chosen to overlook the poor, those, he says, will go to eternal punishment. It's quite a serious, sobering passage when you read that. It's not just something that is an optional extra of being a Christian. I think it's it's something that that shows that you are a Christian, that you are Christ-like, this fact that you're prepared to show love, you're prepared to show grace and mercy to others just as we've been shown grace and mercy in abundance by God. So, to summarize, in this passage we see God's heart for the poor. We see that he wants them to be provided for and has actually built that into his law from olden days. But we also see that he wants to use each one of us to be tools in that provision. Now I know some of what I've said today is a bit challenging and provocative deliberately, but I do want to kind of balance that up and say, and encourage people as well, because I know as a church you are an amazingly generous people, and some of the testimonies and stories that we've heard recently from people have yeah, basically testified about that. 
I know that, that people are giving a lot and doing a lot already, so I don't want to be condemning this morning. Even, you know, little things for us as a family, like when we had uh, Josiah, then people provided meals for a couple of weeks, and, and often the, the meals that they provided were more than enough for one meal so that we could actually freeze a lot of it and use it over and beyond that time. So I, we've seen firsthand just how generous you are and how much you do and how much we are like a family. I guess my, my prompt today is to, to go and not kind of rest in our laurels, but to continually ask God what he would have us do, not out of condemnation, not out of because we must do this, but rather asking God what he would have us do and having faith that as we do that, he will continue to, to bless us and use us and challenge us in more ways and cause us to grow more. I've always found that as I've responded to those kind of prompts, then it's been amazing and it's, it's kind of the old, it's better to give than receive. It kind of builds up more kind of joy and more kind of amazement at how God then blesses you back as a result of it. I believe that this is something that is in our heart here at Jubilee. It's in our, it's in our DNA. If you go back to Isaiah 61, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's exactly the kind of thing that Boaz did in this passage that we've just looked at. He showed amazing favor to Ruth that kind of blew her mind and blew Naomi's mind as well. And that's what we're called to do as Christians. Okay, let's just pray. Lord, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your love and your mercy. And I thank you for the kindness that you have shown to each one of us. I thank you for your provision, for the way that you have looked after all of us. And Lord, I thank you for the different testimonies we have to prove that. And Lord, I just pray that for each one of us, you would kind of speak to us about different things that you would have us do in terms of reaching out and helping others, whether that be financially or whether that be with our time or or whatever else. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us, that we would hear your voice in amongst all the other things that we're kind of bombarded with. And Lord, I pray that as we respond to that, that you would just give us exciting answers to prayer, exciting stories of what you're up to. Thank you, Lord. Amen.